Okay. Awesome. It looks like we are live. So Daniel, thanks for coming on, brother. I really appreciate it. My appreciation to you for having me. I, uh, it's, it's a real pleasure to join you from so far away. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome technology. I, I, I love it. I love it. Um, so I thought we would, before we dive into, um, the main topic of today's discussion, which, which is the book, um, Mm -hmm. which I'm very excited to, to dig my, my heels into a bit with you. Um, how do you describe yourself, uh, in the world professionally, personally, however you want to tackle that just to give some people a bit of a context. Sure. Well, it depends on the day. Uh, I do a bunch of different things. Um, and some days I'm more comfortable with not having a, a, a rigid definition of myself. You know, sometimes I'm jealous of my friends who can say I'm an academic or I'm a doctor. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, I think it's, it's also in some ways uh, a blessing. So I um, usually I start with, I'm a musical theater writer because that's what I put the most time into. Um, I guess 15 years ago now, I graduated from NYU with uh, a degree in musical theater writing. I did their graduate program here in New York. So I'm a composer and a lyricist uh, for the stage. Uh, I write songs that tell stories that move the plot forward in a musical. You know, you think of your favorite Disney musical, Little Mermaid. Those songs were written by Alan Menken and Howard Ashman. Ashman wrote the lyrics. Menken wrote the music. Um, I sometimes do both. I sometimes do one or the other. Um, and I often work with other people. Um, I've written five or six shows now. Uh, and that's a career that comes in fits and starts. It takes forever to get a musical made, if it ever gets made. A lot of developmental steps. It's a very collaborative profession, meaning that you're really, uh, it's a beautiful thing. But unlike being an author where you just get a book contract and, you know, if you're lucky and, and you know it's going to come out into the world, you toil away on a musical, then you have to find a director, a music director, choreographer, you have to have a, a theater pony up and say, we want to produce this thing. And that takes a lot of money to produce a musical because there's so many different move, moving parts. There's the arranger, the orchestrator, the band, the cast, the stagehands, the, the crew who builds the set, the advertising. I mean, so it's just such a uh, collaborative art form um, that at least in my experience, I mean, they say on Broadway, you can make a killing, but you can't make a living. And, um, so a lot of it is is working in and around the industry. I've done a lot of different things. I've been a transcriptionist on Broadway shows, meaning that I uh, I help prepare the the sheet music basically by ear. I listen to demos of the material and I write out the sheet music. You know, I've got my MIDI keyboard here and I do that kind of work. I've taught. I've done a lot of different things in that area, and that's been very uh, rewarding and and artistically fulfilling. Um, I am a mental chiropractor, which is something I made up. Um, I was once, I, there was a time when I was apprenticing with my father in the sort of ayahuasca space, the the, the psychedelic healing world. And I was at a, um, I'm no longer doing that, but I, uh, I was at a retreat in Peru and a participant uh, said to me, you know, you're not a therapist like your dad. And I said, thank you very much because I'm, I'm not pretending to be one. Uh, I have a degree in psychology, but I never did anything with it. Uh, he said, you're a mental chiropractor. I said, wow, that's a great mm. term. I really am flattered by that because uh, 
mental chiropractic, what it's, it is what it sounds like is that, you know, I get in there with people and make a quick adjustment to the alignment of the mind, the mind, just like a spine is made up of different components that are meant to interlock and work together. And it works best if it's in a particular alignment. And if something is out of alignment, you're going to have problems, either pain or nerve damage or some compromised functioning completely elsewhere in the body. So you could have a lower kind of out of joint, you have a headache or pain in your foot. So in the mind, I, I think of it as there's your intentions, which often we're not conscious of. You know, we often operate from default hidden intentions that are actually hidden to ourselves. You have conscious beliefs, you have assumptions, working theories, you have values, moral values, ethical values, you have prejudices, you have um, the imprints of trauma, um, you have, you know, the emotions that come and go. And it all creates a certain system. And, and what I do with people, I don't work on the big ticket issues that you'd go into with, with a therapist, for instance. So if someone comes to me, so for instance, I did a consultation with someone uh, in the Maldives yesterday of all places. And this person said to me, I'm dealing with addiction and I'm dealing with attention deficit, deficit disorder, which obviously are two topics that my father's written about extensively. And I said, well, look, I have experience, personal experience with both of them in my own life, but those are very large, broad life issues that one would need to engage in a course of therapy to get into as well as the traumatic imprints that underlie them if you you know if you give credence to my father's approach to these things which i think is pretty sound you know um i said is there a specific situation in your life right now where these things are showing up you know is there did you relapse recently are you having a hard time forgiving that um in terms of attention deficit disorder, is there is there a conversation you need to have with somebody about that to make different arrangements for yourself? And what I was getting at is that I work on specific situations with people. There's a stuck point. The issue is obviously in the background. The trauma is in the background. I take that for granted. We're all carrying stuff. But where I tend to shine is when someone is struggling with this one particular thing. So if you come to me and say, I have daddy issues, I'd say, go see a therapist. If you come to me and say, I'm going to see my father next week, and I just know it's going to go this particular way, and it always goes this way, and I want it to go some different way. But no matter which way I look at it, up, down, sideways, inside out, upside down, I just know that I can't see it going any other way. Well, that's something we can work on. It's specific. So in a way... I coach people to have a small victory and uh, which is the title of one of my favorite faith, no more songs, a small victory. <laughs> and um, uh, that band might be before your time, um, <laughs> but uh, having a small victory in a very difficult area can sometimes radiate outwards because what it indicates to the whole system is, Oh, it's not set in stone. Mm. And if I can, have a flexibility, suppleness, malleability, and this one thing that seemed set in stone, maybe the whole thing isn't so set in stone. So I, I, in some ways, I deal with it from the outside in, rather than what a therapist would do, which is like getting right to the bottom of the issue and all that. But that takes a lot of time. I don't have the patience for that. 
and I'm, I, I get kind of result. I'm, I'm like, what's the outcome? So mm -hmm. I spend an hour and a half with someone say, and we take a walk together. I call it a mental, a walking mental chiropractic service called walk with Daniel, which is at uh, walkwithdaniel.com. And actually I have them walk wherever they are. And I walk where I am and we're on the phone. Or if we're, we happen to be in the same city, then I do it in person. And over the course of that hour and a half or whatever it ends up being, we both set the intention that we're going to get you unstuck from this thing in the next hour and a half. So it's not, I don't treat it like a process. I don't want to get people in the mindset of, oh, you know, slowly over time. That's cool. You can do that work, but not with me. With me, it's like, what are you stuck with? Are you determined? Do you intend to get unstuck like this? Are you ready to be unstuck? And there's a part of the mind. I, I feel like I'm answering six questions at once that you haven't asked, but uh, <laughs> just, you know, when I say, when I say mental chiropractor, no one knows what I'm talking about at mm -hmm. first blush. So this is what it is. And then, yeah, the idea is that with a high degree of intentionality and basically the person is giving me permission to get in there and make an adjustment. So it's a little more, it's more forceful. Mm -hmm. um, we make that adjustment and people come out of it with a different perspective and something settles ideally the the alignment uh settles into place and all of a sudden it's just much simpler mm. and the person feels empowered to go ahead and um deal with it from a different perspective so that's the mental chiropractor thing i've been doing that for about four years now and i really enjoy that i enjoy doing that with people um and now i'm an author too you know mm. i co-wrote this book uh the myth of normal oops like um with my father and i am now all of a sudden uh a published author <laughs> and we have a second book coming out in a few years based on a workshop that we currently lead and have been for about six years called hello again a fresh start for parents and their adult children which i could talk about if you like but mm -hmm. so you know i do all those things i probably do some other things that i'm not even uh thinking of but that those three things I would say are how I would describe what I'm up to in the world currently. Nice. Well, I love that. I, I feel I can, I can go a hundred different ways with, with that. So that, uh, that, that always helps. Um, I, I, yeah, I connected, I think what connected with me, with your story was, um, obviously listen to the Joe Rogan episode and I've heard, I've heard your father speak many times, but he mentioned the situation. Maybe you can extrapolate it of, you growing up with him and I've, I've had similar not similar I wouldn't call it similar but but let's just call them daddy issues <laughs> but how has that impacted you and how is this coming together it seems to write the book forge this new path going forward um hope that makes yeah. sense but um I, I feel like that's what resonated with me and that's why I wanted to reach out with you was that was mm -hmm. the entry point, but then the more I dug into some of your work, the more stuff I found and the more interested I was. So that's what led me to this discussion. But maybe you can talk to to the process of, of writing the book with your father and, and the impact it's had, but also maybe just giving context as to what it was like growing up and how that- Sure. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's been a powerful process. I would say that independent of working with him, I've been on a journey to excavate what the heck happened in my childhood and what, mm. not just what happened, but what was it like for me? Cause that's the point. It's not so much the events, it's the experience that the child has 
and what happens inside the child that leaves the imprint. I mean, we say, or one of the ways I like to frame it, I don't know, probably hockey is not the biggest sport in South Africa, but what I say is that trauma is the concussion, not the cross check. You know, it's the head injury, not the illegal tackle. Mm-hmm. The tackle is traumatic, but but the it's the imprint that it leaves, and that comes from the experience. And often, once we grow up, we get out, we lose touch, even if we know the facts about our childhood. We had to forget at some point what it was actually like, and that's why it comes back in flashbacks or in nightmares or in in or in trauma trauma triggering moments with somebody completely else, you know, with a girlfriend or a spouse or a boyfriend or a husband um, or a boss or your kids. Uh, and you have that outsized disproportionate reaction to something. And if you know how to look at it, right, you can say, well, that's a clue to what it was like for me. Hmm. That's an echo, you know? So I'd say that my entire adult life, and I'm turning 47 uh, a week today, and uh, has been in some ways a kind of mystery story, a detective story, of trying to figure out why do I struggle the way I struggle. Uh, you know, starting in university, I started having depressive episodes. Um, and those have continued throughout my adult life. And all kinds of struggles with motivation, self-definition, um, anger, difficulty in relationships. It shows up in all kinds of ways. Now, I'm in the unique position of having a father who is, has been increasingly renowned, and by this point, he's internationally renowned, for his work on popularizing the view that childhood trauma is what results, what leads to the results, the outcomes of difficulty in adulthood. Mm-hmm. Which for me is extra confusing because, I mean, on the one hand, it's a real plus because I, you know, there is a language to talk about it. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, there's a language to talk about it a lot and so it's like getting the information about my childhood secondhand. I remember when I was 11, maybe I was having social problems at school and we were in Chinatown in Vancouver and just having come from lunch. And I was telling my dad about, you know, what it was like for me to be bullied or excluded by people I thought were friends. And he said, well, Daniel, you know, when you were very young, my mother, your mother and I were having difficulties and, uh, you know, you, uh, you were a very sensitive child and there was an impact on you and you always, you've always had difficulty reading social cues. So basically I'm getting my trauma explained to me by an expert. And that's not what you actually want from your father. You want guidance. You want compassion. You want listening. You want an example. Mm -hmm. So um, having to climb my way out from underneath the mountain of information, secondhand information and figure out what was it like for me? And so I'd say in the past five or six or seven years, that started to become more, I've had started to have more of an autonomous view of my childhood. My father was a rage filled, pain filled Holocaust survivor mm-hmm. who had very little emotional control. I'm talking about in my early childhood, his voice booming out, yelling, um, stomping around when he was frustrated. Uh, is something I remember. 
he was always very articulate about it. So he would scream, I'm so frustrated, you know, and that was his, that was his version of positive, healthy anger expression. And he might've gotten it from a book on, I don't know, primal scream therapy. I don't know what he was into at the time. He's always been into something. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, you know, there were parenting books all on along the, uh, the walls. And I remember as a kid uh, going to the his bookshelf and like, taking down his parenting books and like leafing through them so I could learn his tricks. Learn he and my mom, like I learned what, what techniques they were going to use on me because I didn't want to be manipulated by these two powerful, really smart people. And I developed a really, really quick, clever, big brain as a way of surviving. So that was my coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents were both very intense, very loving. I mean, they, they felt a lot of love towards their children. They had difficulty getting it across in a calm way that uh, I won't speak for my siblings, but that I could really absorb because one of the child's fundamental needs is security. Knowing that they're both, you know, not just physically and emotionally safe, but that the you come into the world and it's complete chaos and you don't even have a, you know, sensorily, you don't have a sense of you being a separate person you know and then slowly you're you get sort of long distance vision and you realize and and depth perception you realize oh that's mommy and i'm me that's daddy and i'm me that's a chair that i'm living in a world of things and objects and laws like things the world works a certain way and depending on the environment that a child is born into they're going to absorb a different view of the world and my view of the world was that it's very chaotic, very tenuous, that the mood in the house can switch at any moment from loving and humor filled and playful to dark, dark, dark clouds and a punitive atmosphere. Um, One where I'm being blamed, one where my emotions are reacted to or my words are reacted to in an extreme way. Hmm. So it's not safe to, to fully just relax and be me. Now, unlike some kids who learn to be nice and good and suppress their anger, which is, you know, a type of personality dynamic that my father writes about a lot, that wasn't my coping mechanism. My coping mechanism was to raise up and get more, quote unquote, mature and pseudo sophisticated in my intellect and in my language so I could out talk my parents at age you know, five or six. And I think my father has said he was intimidated by my intelligence, my sensitivity, the fact that I could see through him. And that sounds like a superpower, but every superhero has a tragic origin story. Every, you know, you fall into the vat of toxic waste, you come out able to bend steel or whatever it is. You get bit by a radioactive spider and you're all of a sudden you can swing from webs. And it looks cool, but it's there's pain underneath it. So my mm-hmm. big brain became a way of coping with a, you know, it was my navigation system to try and get some sense of agency and safety in the environment. And it almost sometimes worked. And that's the thing about these personality dynamics. They kind of work, they work better than the alternative. And so we do them over and over again and they they become habituated. And then I get to school just around kids who like to hang out and chill and play. And I had zero chill. So then I'm ostracized and then I'm feeling pain about that. And now I'm in this tension between my home life and my school life and, you know, wishing that I could fit in there and feeling like my home life is so weird. So, you know, it was a, 
that whole dynamic. And, you know, I'm certainly not alone in that. I'm sure a lot of people listening will, will relate to at least parts of that. Um, even if they didn't have a famous trauma therapist for a dad who wasn't even a trauma therapist back then, he was a, just a GP, uh, a family doctor. So anyway, that's the background of my childhood. And in my adulthood, um, uh, the process has been trying to reconnect with what was it actually like for me and who is underneath all of that superpower, like to reconnect with the part of me that was terrified or that was furious or that was really sad and grieving and desperate for love. And because knowing about it intellectually, see, my intellect can only get me so far in terms of healing, because it it came along to protect me from the other stuff, the vulnerability. So as life goes on, getting deeper and deeper into, oh, wow, this is what I must have been going through. And then having compassion for that, and then taking my focus off of the externals and the whole narrative and the story, and it's a good story, but the freedom doesn't lie in figuring out exactly what happened. The freedom lies in reconnecting with remembering, you know, the word remember sounds like it's mm -hmm. just about recall, but actually to undismember un these parts of self. Someone that we quote in the book says that I think it's a great formulation. Um, so then to go back to the first part of your question, what was it like and what role did writing this book with my father play? in that whole process. Well, we had gotten to the point where um, we could work together and where I knew that he respected, that I, I provided some value for him. You know, that my skills as a musician, a lyricist, a wordsmith, and a thinker, someone who could see his work from the outside and think, mm -hmm. how can I make this more lighthearted? if possible, um, humorous and accessible, but also more convincing for people who aren't are already aboard what I call the trauma train. You know, there's a lot of people out there who haven't thought about their lives in this way. And I want it to be inviting to them, not just people who go to personal development workshops or have been in therapy for decades or do ayahuasca or whatever. Like, uh, so bringing those perspectives, those productive differences between my father and I, and my mental chiropractic inclination, which is to make things really clear just through how you express it in this moment and how you frame it, um, bringing that to the writing, he basically asked me to join him on the project. He'd been trying to write this book for, at that point, six years, maybe even longer, and having a hell of a time of it. He'd compiled 25,000 articles categorized all by topic on his computer it's it pretty good you know feat of like librarianism he was yeah. he was it was very organized <laughs> um and he you know he was very passionate about this but he didn't quite know how to frame the topic and then at a certain point he he sort of reframed it he realized okay the myth of normal he was going to write a book called toxic culture how capitalism makes us sick which sounds like a hoot, you know, like mm. that's, that's a real, that's a real fun read. <laughs> uh, but then he, he came up with this more positive, interesting 
provocative title, I think. And at that point, he got an agent and he tried to write a book proposal. And, you know, my mom read it and she was like, oh, God, boy, this is really heavy. Uh, and, and it's a slog. And he sent it to me because I had done editing work for him before on The Realm Hungry Ghosts, his previous book. I had done some light editing and some slight, you know, writing some things in there. But it was definitely, you know, it was more of an editing position than a co-writing position. And I looked at this book proposal and I said, Dad, I can help you with this, but I'm going to need to be credited because you need help. Mm -hmm. I'd have to really, and, and not just in terms of the execution, but the structure of it. How do you form the argument? How do you make this interesting and compelling what's the story we're telling and as a dramatist as someone who writes musicals i'm thinking what is the story arc what's the beginning the middle and the end what's going to make it exciting so i came aboard and um it was a challenge um there's a power struggle at times and there was a number of dynamics going on my desire to be seen and appreciated by him to have my unique contribution appreciated and at the beginning, he was kind of territorial. It was his book, after all. Understandably, he's been working on it forever. And I would send him versions of the chapters. Like I would, he would, the basis of the process is he's, he'd write something. He'd send me the chapter. I'd rework it, sometimes heavily, and send it back to him. And early in the process, sometimes when I would send him my version, he'd immediately call me right back and be like, very in a very serious way. It was usually late in the day after he'd been working on it forever. He's like, Daniel, um, you know, your your writing is very fine. And this is how, it, when I'm like, oh shit, here it comes. He's like, but uh, this is not my voice and uh, it's overwritten and it's this and it's that, you know? And I was like, we had to set up a new rule, which is like, dad, sleep on it when I send you something and look at it in the morning. Because often what would happen is he'd email me at 11 a.m. the next day. He'd be like, I woke up and read it. It's actually pretty good. I can work with this. And I said, I don't need you to like sign off on my version. Take my version and do your thing to it. And then we'll pass it back and forth, which is what collaborators do. Which, as I said, in the musical theater world is a big thing I'm used to and quite good at, I think. I wasn't good at it at the beginning, but... My ego has gotten some cross-training in that. So we had to learn how to work together. And I had to learn how to not take it personally hmm. um, when that would happen. And that what started to happen is that I started to see his vulnerability in a way that I'd never seen before. That underneath it all, he was just anxious and insecure as a creator. And I was like, oh, I can relate to that. Hmm. And it's not personal to me. Uh, and so then I would... I would be more gentle in my approach. I could I could stop doing my automatic thing of trying to convince him or be right or whatever. And you know, I failed, I'm sure 60% of the time at first, but 40% is pretty good, you know, mm -hmm. a, a success rate. And uh and you know, similarly for him there was a there was a growing curve. And by the end of it, it was interesting. By the time we were writing the final chapters and then doing our rewrite of the whole thing, we were both writing in a in in a voice that sounded very much like a mix of the two of us. And when one of us would take the other's work and rework it, often it was like, yes, thank you. you that's exactly what I meant to say. Hmm. So by the end, there was a huge lane for me to contribute, to write entire sections with his ideas, 
but me expressing them in the way that the most people would be able to grasp it and get the most out of it. And, and he would say, thank you. That's great. And, and similarly, when I would go off on some tangent, he would take what I'm saying and say it, you know, you can tell I'm a long winded dude, Something I'd say in four paragraphs, he'd say in a couple of sentences, and it would be just as good. So really starting to appreciate each other's gifts. And if I had to sum all of that up, you can hear the interpersonal dynamics underneath the professional work, right? Mutual appreciation, me not taking things personally, seeing him as a human being, him seeing me as his equal, but different, you know, seeing me as a grown-up, respecting my feelings and my work taking responsibility for his own emotions and not dumping onto me the way he had throughout my entire childhood so in a sense the professional relationship the book contract the the mutual project of putting this thing out into the world was like scaffolding for mm -hmm. repairing some of the broken dynamics between us if we had just tried to do that in our ordinary lives, it would have been a lot harder because A, we wouldn't have needed to be talking all the time. We could just avoid each other, avoid the tough stuff. And number two, why? It's hard. We were comfortable in it. In this case, we have an outside reason to do it because if we don't work this out, then this thing, this book is not going to be, oops, sorry, I just your phone again. Um, this book is not going to be the, the singular um, successful, and I say successful, I mean creatively successful, like mm -hmm. the satisfying product that we both want it to be, and it won't make the difference we want it to make. So we had to get off it quickly. We don't have the luxury of, of, of indulging the hurt feelings and whatever. We had to look for solutions. We had to chiropract the situations quickly. So that taught me something, that making something more important and hopefully something external more important than the old patterns creates a powerful intention that can then trump the uh the programming when in the crunch in the moment you know now not everyone's going to write a book with their father i don't recommend it to everybody <laughs> but you know setting up some architecture to support moving in the direction that one or two people want the, the, the relationship to grow in. Mm -hmm. um, it was a powerful experience, you know, and we, we've come out of it feeling very much like a team. Now, not always. There are still times when we take out our stuff on each other. I've been finding I've been doing that quite a lot uh, in the past month, which I'm not proud of. I'm, I'm curious about it. I'm not, you know, I try not to be hard on myself. Like, why is that happening? Hmm. And I think with the release of the book, I've been feeling insecure because he's getting all the attention, which he should. This book is his work. Our next book is going to be very much a 50-50 collaboration hmm. on the parent-child you know, relationship. Neither of us is more of an expert than the other. Well, he's put in decades of work as a, as a health professional and a healer and a speaker and a teacher. But there's this little boy in me that wants that's afraid that I'm going to be ignored or that he's going to take, you know, that, that, yeah, that I won't be seen and appreciated and that I'll be taken for granted. And when that little boy takes over, all of a sudden I'm in a nightmare 
and the world looks very dark and it looks very unfriendly and he looks like a villain it's incredible how inside that framework he can actually take on the bad guy contours that i used to frame him in as a child i mean he was really i loved him i worshiped him but also he was he was the monster mm. i would have nightmares about the big bad wolf and it was him so those things at least so far and maybe in my next steps of therapy or whatever i'll get to the place where those i can finally put those nightmares to bed so to speak and they don't come back um i'm not at that point yet i'm at the point where i have to manage them and i have to be responsible for them as an adult and watch for them and see the signs of them and when i can't trust the people around me to see it and then take the note when they give it to me like hey daniel you're slipping into that mm. and uh you know that's humbling mm. i'm for all the things i know there's a difference between being intelligent about emotions and being emotionally intelligent. That's what I've learned in the past few months. Well, I just want to say thank you so much for, for opening up that and that level of vulnerability. I certainly, I certainly connect with that on a very deep level. And obviously it's not, I'm not writing, I'm not co-authoring a book with my father, but everything you, everything you, you pave there, I can, I can relate to a similar experience and so i just want to say thank you because that's that's beautiful and to hear it from your side i think adds just that residue of realness that i that i crave that i crave and i think a large part of my work and the things that i do and the things i'm interested in is is that remembering it's that being a self and not having my father present most of my life um he's alive, just not present, but is being very much a self-taught human. And I, and I think a lot of things I've had to teach myself and a lot of that has been the going back. Paradoxically, it's not the forgetting, it's the remembering. Yes. And, and forgiving my father for a lot of things. And, and, and some of that, a lot of that forgiveness, I had a, I recently had a guest, Nathan Maingard was a beautiful conversation. I've just released it today, actually. Um, and I spoke about uh, a um, San Pedro ceremony that I had, and uh, it was the most profound thing. And my intention, you, you've, you've mentioned intention a lot, and I think that's so important. And my intention growing into that ceremony uh, was, to, was to forgive my father. And, and, I, and I, I remember taking the San Pedro and just witnessing me and my father came together and we, we, locked, we locked heads and I, and I saw my ancestors dancing around us and they, they all came together and I saw my dad's pain as a kid. Mm. I saw mm. the exact same pain that was passed down onto me. Mm -hmm. And it was the most prof one of the most profound experiences I've ever had. Uh, so, but I, again, I just want to say thank you because that your story I can connect with and uh, I love that. It's beautiful. Oh, you're welcome. And, and I love that image of uh, that, that you had in that ceremony. What I love about that is it instantly confers nobility, like an archetypical, mm -hmm. like the ancestors are, are dancing around you and they're, they're celebrating in a way this battle between father and son. It's not inherently pathological. It goes back, you know, forever. Jesus had a lot of issues with his father. 
you know? Uh, it's a question of how do we do that wrestling match and what is it for? And, um, you know, you talk people, you know, you talk about, it's not about forgetting, it's about remembering. When people say, put it behind you, what they actually mean is forget it. Or don't, often what they mean is, you know, overcome it or um, treat it as if it's, you know, sort of change your attitude towards it. Another way to think, I mean, that's cool. If you can do that, my hat's off to you. For me, what put it behind you means is, first of all, recognize that it's not behind you. It's in your lap. It's still here with you. And you have to take a real look at it first. You have to face it. And then gently realize that it actually is behind you. It's not happening anymore, mm -hmm. you know? So it's like, put it in its place, recognize where it is, take whatever, you know, in your carry-on bag, you want to take with you about it because you don't have to reject all of it. Yeah. Um, there are gifts in it. Um, but don't just try to, I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a stoic. Like I don't really have a stoic temperament. Um, I have to fully see something for what it is. I have to really excavate it. This is maybe the artist temp temperament in me. You know, I have to go all the way into it and uh, and transform my view of it. And then I don't have to let go of it. It lets go of me. It wants something from me. And it has, it, it, it's asking something of me. Mm. It's, it's bringing me some kind of gift, but it's often, you know, wrapped in a turd. So I have to, <laughs> you know, oh, love that. Uh, or maybe, or maybe a turd shaped birthday cake. Um, uh, so I have to do that digging to find the skeleton mm -hmm. key inside of it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, but again, all we just did with, you know, with the example of you and your, you just, it's not like you saw a vision of peace and love and flowers and, and, your father and you, you know, soaring through the air, holding hands. No, you saw a wrestling match. You saw a battle, hmm. but a battle for what? Hmm. A battle between his trauma and your trauma, but a battle to understand each other hmm. and immediately becomes beautiful on some level, tragic, sad, difficult, absolutely painful, sometimes brutal, but you know, there can be there can be beauty in MMA. There can be beauty in uh, not that I'm a fan of that particularly, but it, a lot of people find a lot of there's a kind of you know two worthy opponents locking horns. Yeah. You don't have to have positive thinking about it. The question is, can you see it fully, and then can you see it from multiple points of view? Mm. I think that's it's the it's one antithesis of trauma because trauma is it limits response flexibility. It, you're reacting, not responding. I mean, you have you you have only one go-ahead interpretation, and and that's that's your go-to, and it, it's just the automatic way you see it. And when you unfasten that, hmm. you can see it from that point of view. Like I, I can see my dad as a villain. That's one story. Yeah, it's not a bad story. I might write it that way sometime in a graphic novel or in a in a nightmare sequence in a musical. Like. It's valid. That was how I experienced it. That was my subjective reality. But it's not the only view. The other, you know, another view is his tragic childhood and the Holocaust and him and him being in the grips of a curse or a, 
um, or some kind of demon possession, you know, mm -hmm. that's another kind of fantastical, but still metaphorically resonant, you know, Darth Vader, for instance, right? That's another kind of way of rendering the, the father-son wrestling matches that you have this creature that's become more machine now than man, as Obi-Wan says. Mm -hmm. But Luke believes there's still his original essence in him. And he's holding space for his father to transform. And he, in the end, by witnessing his son's suffering at the hands of the Emperor, at the very, very, very last minute, mm -hmm. the human being in Darth Vader awakens, the compassion awakens, the courage, the ability to see it differently, to, to be disillusioned, to let go, you know. So that's another story. Another story is that we're just two dudes, you know, <laughs> just arguing, <laughs> you know. Like, it's meaningless. So th the more... This is why I love theater is it gives us, as, as Stephen Sondheim said in one of his great musical theater songs, give us more to see mm. um, and, and, and learning to see things from multiple points of view at once um, to me is the essence of mm. freedom because that's where choice comes in and that's where flexibility and humor and I can just relax when I can see that it, to quote another classic musical theater song from Showboat from the 1920s, it ain't necessarily so. Mm. Yeah, that, that word awaken for me is beautiful. Uh, I often think about it and I like to imagine, you know, this, this, the last few years for me have, have been this discovery of like awakening this inner shaman inside of me. And I know mm. these, these Swedu shamans and, and people that, but, there truly is, and, and, and I guess that goes back to the archetypal view of it, but there is this guide inside, I, I believe, everyone, and then you sort of lose touch to that, and I suppose that's the authenticity part of maybe what your father speaks about in his work and what you may be yes. used to. What role, can you speak to the role of maybe some psychedelics? I don't know if you've dabbled and, and what maybe role they've, they've played in healing and obviously yeah. some cautionary tales to be to let on to that as well, but... I'm very interested in, in the role that they've played in your healing process. And thank you for, mm -hmm. and I just want to say thank you for outlining the fact that you still have work because that, that really entails, uh, it entails a lot to say that. And, and I found that vulnerability uh, very essential to the, to the conversation itself. So thank you. Yeah. Well, thanks for that acknowledgement. I mean, given that my dad are embarking, dad and I are embarking on, we've already embarked on a project of, guiding other people through these parent-child relationships mm. we'd better be working on our stuff i'd better be working on my stuff because to pretend that we had it figured out and have some kind of like you know gabor and daniel's five easy steps to you know bullshit like that that would be the most dishonest thing we could do um what we're trying to do is in some ways model for you know maybe provide explore or wonder about a new language for talking about it but also model an intestinal fortitude to stick with it if it's worth it to you you know you don't need to have a relationship with your parents when you're an adult but if you choose to and you're going to have a relationship with them whether they're in your life or not that's the good news and the bad news they could die they could be on the other side of the world you could be exchanged from them and then they are still right there with you um psychedelics 
I am not currently engaged with any psychedelic work. Um, marijuana is sometimes has psychedelic properties for me, but it's very unreliable. It's ve it's a real trickster, you know. Marijuana makes you think that your every thought is the most genius thing in the world, and the next day you're like, <laughs> but but I have but I have found that uh, if I don't take literally the thoughts I have, then it's interesting to observe what comes up and I get hunches. I get inclined. I get, I get a little hint or a clue sometimes with that medicine slash drug. And it's very, very tricky because it can be such an escape from life. And this is the, and also I don't do it medicinally. I don't do it ceremonially. There's no guide. And so then it can easily become this pleasurable escape that numbs you from your pain. Um, in the past though, I definitely did plant ceremonies. I've done San Pedro once in Peru and it was a, it was a powerful experience. I'd have to say I have a, a fraught relationship with it because I was married to somebody who was deep in that world and who was actually an apprentice of my father. Um, and I was very mesmerized by this person's connection to plants and in some ways, I tried to immerse myself in it more than I would have as a way of staying close to her. Mm -hmm. But what that, what that tells you is that I didn't feel that I was enough. Mm -hmm. And she ended up, you know, she ended up with a shaman in Peru. Like it was the most cliched thing. So essentially I got, I got left for that world, but in a sense, I never really fully had her hmm. and I was, um, I'm not blaming her, you know? Uh, so ayahuasca was a world in which I both found myself and I kind of lost myself for a while. You know what I'm saying? Hmm. Um, and this can happen in many different ways for people in spiritual communities or psychedelic communities that, on the one hand, it's a refuge, you know, it's the, the Sangha part of the, of the, the Buddha's triad of the, the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, the community. Um, and on the other hand, in some ways, I did lose myself in it. Now, while I had lost myself in it, or it's, it's, it's never just one thing. I got to connect with deep experiences of love of connection to everything of, of i'd say the biggest thing that the plant medicine world gave me was a sense of wonder a sense of awe and wonder and if it did anything for me it didn't instill any new beliefs in me like my then and we're divorced now uh my wife at the time was i think had some literal beliefs in the plant spirit world and many of the people in that community. And my dad was a part of that community too, which made it even more complicated, you know, and the fact that she was learning from him, it was, it was kind of incestuous, um, but also very interestingly, in some ways, a microcosm of my childhood in, in a sense, in ways I won't get into, but um, not that there was literal incest in my childhood. That's not what I mean, but emotionally. Yeah. You know, just, too much overlap, not knowing enough who I am. But 
it's not so much that it instilled new spiritual beliefs in me, but it did unfasten many of my, my unbeliefs, my, 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 my fundamentalist skepticism, my cerebral supremacy. Uh, it showed me that there are aspects to reality and consciousness that are far beyond the everyday mind can achieve that the natural world is you know the only thing i can the only piece of art that i've ever seen that really captures this oddly enough is avatar where you just have this sense that you're opening into a world of a much deeper intelligence of a people who are who understand that they are not separate from something much larger. Now that didn't cure me of my sense of separateness at all, but it gave me experiences that I can never unsee now. They are mm -hmm. reference points. And if I bring them back, they're right there with me. But that's my choice to integrate them or to just forget them. Um, it also taught me something about letting go. When you do ayahuasca, you have to be willing to purge. You're not always going to vomit, but it happens, or you purge in different ways, various bodily excretions you have no control over. Um, and learning to encourage, caress, hold my mind in a way that it could feel safe enough to give up the ghost and just let go for a second and trust mm. something else. Mm. That's that's a tenderizing experience that's that's on on the court training you know which again hopefully it makes the muscles around that the the rigid control muscles around our emotions a little more soft a little more supple so it opened me up um but i would say that for me at a certain point once my marriage was complete once the divorce was over I realized this isn't really me mm. uh, and, and that um, I'm not called to this in the way that some people are. It's a helpful tool and I would recommend it to anyone dealing with serious addiction or serious illness or wants to really, as a friend of mine says, go to the basement, like really get down there and see what's in there. I got to see what's in there. I got to see some, some really vivid visual metaphors and, 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 um, embodiments of what I'm carrying in me. But for me, I've, I, I developed a kind of hunger for real-time integration mm. to have insights in my everyday state of mind that I can instantly integrate and I don't have to make any sort of metaphorical bridge between a different, a different state of consciousness and this one like to me that's that's where the action is hmm. because that's where i feel i can most reliably integrate it and 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 learn from it and and where something actually changes where my ordinary state of mind learns that it can give up control where my ordinary everyday brain learns oh i don't have to see it just one way yeah you know rather than developing a kind of fixation on you know, a kind of reverent, like a sort of a idealization of romanticization of the psychedelic state, which a lot, quite frankly, 
a lot of white people, not just white people, but people in the West, bourgeois, privileged people from the global North and colonial enclaves of the global South, like where you are, <laughs> um, we're consumers. We consume mm. no matter what, you know, we were, we were raised in a consumer culture. That's not to say people don't develop genuine, humble, indigenous informed relationship with plants, but it definitely goes against the grain of our upbringing. Mm. And so I just am wary of that for myself, but I don't, I, I still consider it like many modalities that I've done in the past, not psychedelic, but different, you know, personal development styles that I'm no longer doing. I have the highest esteem for it. Mm. I'm just at a place in my process where that's not going, that's not what's going to forward things for me. You know yeah and that and that takes um yeah that takes it takes a lot and i just want to what you mentioned is finding yourself to lose yourself that that was that that is so that hits that's called close. the m and m that's yeah. that's that's called the m and m doctrine that you got to lose yourself exactly it, it, it i came to the world and, and i want to be respectful of your time um and i will we'll wrap up soon but I came into the world of psychedelics uh, the exact same. I, I I found myself, and 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 I thought this was it, and obviously young and free, and and then sort of lost it. And now there's this again going back to it. Now there's this remembering coming back, and mm-hmm. and that San Pedro ceremony was an, was an intention to do it ceremonially for the first time because I wanted to respect the medicine and not do it in a party. Very state. important. Exactly, and not do it in a party setting. And I tell yeah. everyone now, I tell friends and family and stuff, is that I had that I had the, the the San Pedro, and I've done a mushroom. The mushrooms were calling me to do it in a ceremonial setting to respect the medicine, and that had a yeah. huge impact on me the last few years. So, I yeah, I might go back to that. I, and I might go back to mushrooms. I think mushrooms are mm. a sort of low impact, mm-hmm. high yield. Um, I resonate with mushrooms somehow, you know, and I've never done them ceremonially. And I think that could be interesting. So I'm not done with psychedelics by any means. Mm. Um, but just be keeping it, you know, keeping it real, be honest with yourself. Mm. Who am I being? How am I using this? Mm. Um, and yeah, I can't stress enough that the ceremonial traditions, I mean, these are that, these are vast, deep networks of intelligence, these indigenous ways of knowing. And indigenous, the, the word literally means originating from a place. Mm-hmm. So it comes from, a, a, you know, a people, a culture that is rooted in a sense of home, mm-hmm. which means they're connected with their surroundings and they understand the ways of this ecosystem and this biosphere. And we've lost that. We're totally denatured. And um, it takes a lot of humility and um and unlearning a lot of things to open oneself to that but ceremonial contexts provide a container in which there is meaning built into it it's not just some random drug experience yeah. it's uh you know and that can include synthetic uh substances like mdma or lsd in a in a therapeutic setting that's not exactly ceremonial but it's intentional yeah. that's what it has in common and that you're you're not alone you're you have a guide and, um, but you know, people find their own way to do things. And, uh, 
I, I'd say, you know, I'm not here to prescribe or judge, prescribe or proscribe any, any one approach. You have to kind of, you have to find your way. And often that's trial and error. Certainly has been for me. Yeah. Well, Daniel, this was absolutely phenomenal. Um, I connected with so much. Um, so I really appreciate your time. And I, like I said, I'm sure you're a very busy man. So it, it means a lot to me. Is there anything else you would like to end off with? Or can we? Uh, well, can I can I plug my website? Go for it. And I'll put all the links. Yeah, so yeah. Sure. Yeah. So I mean, if this mental chiropractic thing resonates to anyone listening, mm -hmm. you can go to www.walkwithdaniel.com. And just you can read up a little bit more on what it is. And I do like a free 15 minute call with anyone who wants to ask questions about it uh, to see if it's a fit. And uh, yeah, it's something I really enjoy doing. And um, it's not for everybody and it's not for every situation, but I've found it to be a pretty topically effective, you know, like care, like specifically applied. Um, I've helped a lot of people get unstuck and I enjoy doing that. And it's a very nice uh, compliment or counterbalance to my self-absorbed artist life where I'm alone at the piano and, you know, trying to write a song. Like I'm there with somebody else applying my, my language skills and my, my intuition to, to someone else's situation. And I love it. I love, I love the moment when someone gets free and clear or something that seemed just like a fucking slog. And <laughs> just, I love that moment where it's like, Oh, Oh, it's that satisfying yeah. it's that satisfying click that happens that you that, that gives exactly you that exactly it's it's like you know <laughs> here we go you know it's like that's <laughs> something something snaps into place so yeah so i just invite anyone to uh to check it on out if they're so inclined awesome. and the myth of normal available now from amazon I, I assume you can order it from the south african version of amazon yeah if you guys I've, have I've, one. I've just started diving into it. I'm really excited to, to, to dig my heels into it for sure. Great. Well, read it in good health. Awesome. Thanks, Daniel. Thank you, Josh. Take care.